G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for unsafe conversations. This is your refuge from the black and white world of right-wing blowhards and left-wing complainers. This is the place beyond the echo chamber of your social media feed and the partisan mainstream press. It's a place without good guys and bad guys where the only thing that's banned is taking offence at a true statement. Uh, and I suppose black and white worldviews as well are not welcome here. There are no taboos, there are only good arguments and bad arguments. I'm here to sniff them out. Change doesn't happen in an echo chamber, friends. Welcome to Uncomfortable Conversations. Today's show is one of the quirkiest and most original and most fascinating so far. Let me explain what's going on here. Uh, when I moved from the US to Australia, back to Australia, it was the very end of 2017, and I had two newborn twins and a somewhat stalled former podcast, which many of you will have been fans of, called We The People Live, which had had a very successful run in the United States and which gradually fell apart in, under the burden of being a new father and moving to the other side of the world and taking on a new job at ABC Radio in Sydney. And one of the final hurrahs that I recorded for that show, not knowing at the time that it was going to be final because I didn't realise that my life was going to be as complicated in 2018 as it turned out to be, was a live event with the one and only Tim Minchin. We gathered at the Giant Dwarf Theatre in December of 2018, just before Christmas, to a, a sold-out show, a packed house, and Tim and I chatted, and Tim performed my favourite song of his. It's called White Wine in the Sun. It's a, a Christmas ode about a person who is living abroad, as many young Australians do when they go and do a stint in the US or UK or Europe and spend a Christmas over there dreaming in a sort of reverie of their summery Christmas back home as they freeze on a distant English isle. It's incredibly moving, and he totally brought it home at the live event. If you don't know Tim by name... He's a difficult person to explain. He's a musician and comedian. He calls himself a sort of a sort of a minstrel in, in a sense, in the best possible way. He's most known for musical comedy. So he he wrote the music and lyrics for the musical Matilda, based on the Royal Dahl book, uh, which opened in Stratford upon Avon in 2010 and went on to become one of the most critically acclaimed and popularly successful musicals of the past. 20 years, it won 85 awards, 16 for Best Musical, it won seven Liviers, five Tonys, and had a fantastic run on the West End and also on Broadway. Uh, his less successful musical was Groundhog Day, the musical, which despite a short run, did win the Olivier Award and was nominated for, uh, for the Tony. Uh, but he's so much more than that. He graces the small screen in Australia a lot. He exploded onto the scene originally at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival in 2005 and then at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. American audiences might remember him from Californication. And he has countless hit musical albums and comedy albums, including uh, a kid's song, When I Grow Up, which has a beautiful picture book 
uh, to accompany it, which my kids absolutely adore. So I won't keep raving. I will allow you to enjoy my conversation live in front of a packed house in the middle of summer in Sydney just before Christmas in 2018. Needless to say, this is during the Trump administration. It's a different era. It's a different time. A lot of this might be dated, but the subjects and the topics and the things that he's digging his mind into, his incredible creative mind, are timeless, as always. Please enjoy. Oh, this will be in two parts as well. We'll, re- we'll release the first half this week and the second half next week. Uh, so you get to enjoy that or you get to bear a grudge against me for making you wait. Either way, up to you. If you want to be happy in life, why not just enjoy getting two instead of being disappointed that you only get half. Glass is half full, ladies and gentlemen. Please enjoy my conversation live with Tim Mitchin. Please welcome the one and only Tim Minchin. Tim! What do you do, Tim Minchin? Like, what do you write on the customs card as your occupation oh, when you're um, entering a country? I'd see, I just checked that I don't have holes in my jeans. Um, the audience is right there. Right yes. there. Right there in my, in my crotchal area. Yeah. I write musician. You write musician. I write musician. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I consider myself a musician. Is that ostentatious? I suppose. I mean, no, it's not I ostentatious. A, you are a musician. It's just yeah. you're so many other things. You're like a little octopus, one of whose tentacles is musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you chopped it off, it'd grow back <laughs> uh, as a slightly better musician. <laughs> We should try. Um, I I say musician just because it make because otherwise they ask too many questions and yeah. it seems ridiculous. And is that what what like eight year old Tim Minchin would have wanted to have been doing? I oh, wouldn't have dreamt of it. I just didn't. It, not until I sort of already was one did I consider that I could be one. Just because it's just I wasn't brought up in a family where you thought that was an option. Not not that anyone was repressing the idea. I just mm. didn't. I thought, oh, I like playing music, but there'll have to be a job. Because right. also Perth, you know, it's not like there's lots of people who are just musicians. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are. I just didn't see them. <laughs> uh, hiding in bars. <laughs> uh, at what point then, when you're becoming a musician, do you realise, actually, that I can sort of talk about things as well, and I can make jokes, and I can make people laugh, and maybe there's some sort of... Maybe there's an octopus in this. Yeah. Yeah. Um... The cephalopodic nature of my uh, <laughs> career came to me like a sinking feeling. Uh, I think I always did. I, I, you know, I, I was a musician, but I always wrote wordy, quirky, o- overly didactic, silly songs from when I was very young. And I always liked doing school plays. And, so, so I, and I, was, I wrote music for theatre before I... M- that was very early. That didn't come with Matilda. I was writing music for theatre at 17, 16, uh, for youth theatre and local blah, blah, blah. And, uh, was it any good? Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the first musical... Uh, I, I wrote a musical version of Love's Labour's Lost that had songs in it that have proper good melodies. Although the, music, the lyrics were John Dunn's mm. and William Shakespeare's, so it was easier. It, was, you're working with good, good stuff. Not bad material. I, yeah. I, <laughs> Trouble with the Elizabethans is they go A B B A and I'd just go, Oh fuck that <laughs> just straighten it up so it could be a Let's pop throw song. in a Z. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it was uh, uh, it, that that sort of the um 
story of my career is mm. that I spent my 20s doing everything yeah. to no particular success, partly because I refused to specialise. It's a high-level high gamble to go, you know what, I, 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 I didn't refuse to specialise because I thought I was good at everything. I didn't specialise because I didn't think I was good enough at any of them. You yeah, know? right. I thought, I'm just I'll taking just... off my beautiful jacket because he we is. were talking before the show about whether or not I should outsmart like yeah, so I, I haven't. His, I've been doing this fashion. show, and I haven't had my hair. My hair's. An, I'm wearing a beanie because I'm an asshole, basically. Um, I'm going to get too hot, and my hair's just a mess. Oh, but your hair is a part. Your hair is a part of the That's great one cuttlefish. of my octopus arm. The great cuttlefish. <laughs> I'm going to go through as many cephalopods as yeah. I can think of tonight. Cuttlefish, octopus. I don't know. I'm I knew this in. would become a competition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you, we were we were talking earlier about the sort of stages in one's life and. How you might, you know, when you're young, your 20s is just interminable. It yeah, goes, it on goes for a long time. Yeah, as long you, as, you, you know, feel like you're never going to be 30. To... No. And then your 30s are sort of a coherent, cohesive unit of time. Mm-hmm. And now that you're in your 40s, you're like, okay, I've only got a few, few units yeah. left. We were just talking about how a decade, in your 40s, a decade now feels like a unit. And suddenly you go, oh shit, running out of units. So 40 to 50 is a unit I have to figure out what to do with and I'm, I'm stumbling very quickly towards halfway through it. Yeah, right. So to the little squid who yeah. you were. Yeah, yeah. What does, what does being in your 40s now look like to, to 20-something Tim? Well, I would be extraordinarily excited by what happened. I mean, I would... I would there, there's no... The, I'm very, very lucky here. <laughs> to put it mildly, there is no lotto win or... That I, I literally can't think of, career-wise, um, my marriage is a sham and I hate my... <laughs> <laughs> my children are fucking <laughs> off the rails. But um, <laughs> career-wise, <laughs> 12 and 10, they're just like putting it up their arms. Um, um, the, uh, I, career-wise, I can't imagine... I, I think I've got the best career of anyone I, in the world. Mm. I mean, I just get to... Again, it's not really... You call it a career. It's not really it's a not career. It's not a career. No, it's a series of... Basically, I've, I've got this sort of piece of paper in my mind and down the left is a bunch of boxes and, and, and they're all described... Uh, they describe things that I got rejected for in my 20s and I'm just going back and ticking the cunts. You know, <laughs> I just go, oh, you didn't want me to write a musical? I'm writing a musical now. Oh, you didn't want me to be an actor? I'm acting now. It really is just a sort of... It's, I've literally, I've just been able to go through and to do whatever I thought, mm. thought would be fun. But are now there any, are there any, is there anyone who bullied you in year eight who you'd like me to send some photos of you in successful places to? Like with you and me. <laughs> Look who I'm <laughs> yeah, at. That's right. I'm with fucking Zeps. <laughs> I'm with Zeps. A giant dwarf. Didn't see that coming, did you? I fucking made it. <laughs> I made it. Look at this. It's plastic. I got a plastic, plastic glass. Drink an $8 bottle of wine out of a plastic yeah. glass. Who's a bully now, Fatty <laughs> McGee? Why do you hate Irish Catholics? Why do you oh, hate yeah, them yeah. so much? <laughs> I wasn't... I, don't, I have no uh, bullied uh, backstory. My, my no. ambition to... There's no doubt I have a... Like, I'll show them, but there's just no them. No, no, right. there was no one said, you know, and, and anyway, it's so fucking dumb. The, you know, people go, oh, you know, my teachers said I'd never make it. I showed them. It's mm. just like, it's so stupid because you should be like, 
thank you for saying I never make it because that's the thing that put a bug up my ass. Or mm. it, it, it's absurd to sort also of st- why hold are you anger. listening to a teacher in the first place? Yeah, that's right. Like, and who why is that, is that like teacher? actually think about that teacher's life and what they've yeah. achieved in their life? No offense against teachers, they're extremely important. Catholics like, and teachers, he hates. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> Old Pastor Fatty McGee, I never <laughs> liked him. <laughs> Uh, no, but you know what I mean. Like, we, I think when we're young, we, we, we absorb so much negativity from people who actually have no standing to give it to us. Or, or, or they might have been right. You know, that, 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 you know like, so, so if a teacher says to 100 kids over their career, and I bet they never said, you'll never make anything of yourself. No, no teacher said that since 1942. You haven't met old Fatty McGee. Yeah, it's very unlikely since Fatty McGee that... Anyone, what, what the kid heard was you'll never make it. But what the teacher probably said is, Zepps, with this attitude, you're going nowhere. And that's exactly what a teacher should bloody say because you probably had a bad attitude. I and, did have a bad attitude. And, I was a little smart-ass. And, that's, and, that, and, and so that, they're good, those teachers. And whether or not they have standing to, you know, whether they have a foot to stand on in terms of lecturing people getting somewhere, although I think as a teacher they're probably the most important people in the world, um, along with Catholics. Um, <laughs> I'm just healing. I'm healing the wounds. Um, but, uh, but they... You know, it's fine that a teacher told you you weren't good at something because there's two responses you can have as you grow older. One is to go, you know what, they were right. I'm going to concentrate on this. Or you can go, I'll show you. And both of them are good. Mm. And there's no point sort of, that's great. That's all good stuff. That's can all, I, can that's I, can all I just, fuel to the fire. Can I just ask one of my fans to clip the bit where Tim just said, Zeps, with that attitude, you'll <laughs> yeah. get nowhere. No, you have and not just the take permit- that out of context. You have no- yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We like uh, Minchin claims Zeps will never get anywhere <laughs> yeah. with that yeah. attitude. And then Zeps died the next day. <laughs> exactly. It's horrible. Police questioning Minchin. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Uh, yeah. I hope you don't die. Said he- <laughs> I hope you leave Said it. it broke his heart. He never recovered from that. <laughs> Walked out of the theatre into the rain. No one ever saw him again. <laughs> Poor old Zeps. I'll write a song about you. It, yeah. <laughs> I'll just use the same old chords. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll sell it for charity. Some Beyond Blue or something. No. It'll be fine. <laughs> the whole song will just be about how I really never made it. Yeah. yeah. With that attitude. Yeah. Yeah. How your death was the only thing you did that <laughs> was impressive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, the song can be called He Finally Got It Right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> the Ballad of Zeps. Uh, speaking of joking about politically incorrect things. <laughs> uh, speaking of segues, the guy who invented <laughs> it fell off a cliff on a segue. Is that apocryphal or true? I believe it's true. Yeah. But that's a different kind of segue than a segue. <laughs> Segways are segues, aren't they? Are they? They're all, they're all ways to smoothly hover from one thing to the next. Hmm. One is a one? metaphorical linguistic device, and one is a highly convenient mode of transportation. Unless you drive it along the top of a cliff. <laughs> In which case, famously. You're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> um, Good way to go, though, if you own... If you're the major investor in Segway, it's... If you're going to die early, mm. die ironically. That's well, what I... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Also, if someone's going to be killed by your stupid transportation device, thereby tanking your company, you might as well put yourself out of your misery and not Before have to face the music. So it's best a, that it's you. That's a quite circular sort of argument, though. <laughs> Better not to die and not tank your company. Well, I can agree to disagree about that, Tim yeah, Minchin. Speaking of politically incorrect things to joke about, um, we, were, we were talking earlier about the kind of risks and dangers of doing things like this because you're never quite sure in the current climate whether you're going to tread on some kind of a landmine or, or trigger a tripwire and that, and that every week or every month we see some poor public figure uh, being harangued and beaten down on Twitter for putting their, their foot in their mouth um, about some, some area in which there's supposed to be a politically correct orthodoxy. Do you feel liberated to say everything that you would want to say in public? No, I've, I'm very happy to remain iconoclastic about the things I have established myself as being iconoclastic about. Like, I, none of this stuff m makes me worried that, you know, uh, the, the enemies I've already established I'm proud of. <laughs> I... I I don't mind if Andrew Bolt writes another column about me, and I don't, I, although I try not to say his name, sorry. Um, uh, I don't mind... Fatty McGee. <laughs> Fatty McGee. Uh, I'll show him. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind if I get death threats from whatever. I, I, so that's all fine. I, I, don't, I don't feel like there's any political correctness gone mad. I, I think that's kind of a 90s description of it. It's slightly more complicated than that. I find it hard to talk about the things that my tribe, I guess progressives, hold as sort of sacred. I, I'm very cautious at the moment about certain topics because I kind of want to say some stuff about it, but it's just not worth it. And I don't, I'm not totally sure about them. So maybe it's working perfectly. Maybe it's making people like me not have big opinions on stuff that they're not really sure about anyway. I do think it's a huge pity across all the entire political spectrum, regardless of skin colour or gender or sexual preference or anything, I think it's a pity if our tendency to take things out of context, which is inevitable in social media times, and hold them up as exemplars of a poor opinion, that seems uh, not a good way to move forward to me because if, if everyone... Uh, if everyone in this room, even the most... No one's born woke, right? Especially because you can't be born woke because woke changes, right? It changes incredibly rapidly these days, you know? Um, and so I feel like I have been awakened in the last 20 years since going to an all-boys private school in Perth, West Australia. <laughs> I, was, I was brought up by... A beautiful family but it, you know I've learned so much and and some of publicly some of it in a way that made me feel sick that I'd got it wrong but m me as a straight white cisgendered male with power and a, and a voice going through those journeys and being allowed to go through them and go and share that is not a negative thing in the world maybe we've got too many straight white male voices but it's not a negative thing so I, I think it's a pity taking away the straight white maleness of, for anyone if they are, they find themselves not feeling like they can joke 
Not that I'm saying that I think everyone should be you, out of You want more say, racist humor in tonight's Yeah, exactly, show. right? I, I, I'm pretty... You know, I have people go, oh, I, oh, I like your stuff. It's not PC. How about PC? Fucking PC got mad. And I go, mate, you're talking to the wrong person. I am completely PC. So I think political correctness is a good thing. What I do is try and use language that isn't used in everyday life to undermine powerful people. Well, that's what PC is about, is protecting less powerful people. However... Well, it depends on your definition of PC. Yes, that's exactly right. And I what, mean, pow- if, if what, what you mean is, is making right. it taboo to call people a racial epithet, then that's great. Yeah. But if what you're saying is that it's impossible to have a conversation about the parameters of satire or humour... Uh, if you're a white male because you don't have the lived experience of being a transgender black woman, then that's a problem. And that's what PC, yeah. that's what I think the critics of PC yeah. see PC bleeding into. But that's not what they're talking about. The people who talk about PC gone mad are generally just going, why can't I call my wog friend a wog anymore? Well, know? sure, that would be a stupid position to hold. And, and you're right that Andrew Bolt holds it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, and that's well, the other trouble. But, but my concern is, just to interrupt, but no, my, no, no, but no, my concern is that, that we're seeing a cleavage in culture where, where, where people who do want to have a somewhat more vibrant and rambunctious and freewheeling debate about some of these issues on the left are feeling so cowed that they have the conversation that we've just been having for the past four minutes. Yeah. And that seeds the territory to, to the Andrew Bolts of the world. So you end up with only two camps. There's either bigots who are using the, the scare, the boogeyman of political correctness to defend their own indefensible bigotry. Mm-hmm. And then you've got everyone else pretending that we're all completely 100% on board with anything as long as it is, uh, as long as it adheres to the orthodoxy of a certain set of beliefs that you have to have on the left. And there's no fun at the edges of that left anymore. So we actually, we actually seed the ground. I, actually, I think that's perfectly put. It's, it's, it, the danger is that the only people going, you progressives are a bit mad, are the far right. Uh, instead, we progressives should be going, we progressives are a bit mad. And that's actually what I want to do a bit of in the next couple of years, is try and find a way without losing humour, without getting too nervous, and accepting that it will get me shit from people I love, from the people who used to love me. I, I want to just say... We're a bit cray-cray sometimes. And what we're cray-cray about is not the end game. We're, we're, and I, st- I want to say, and we're right. We're still in the right. Mm. Progressivism is still inevitably, we're going to look back and we're going to say, no, we were right. We've just got to be careful we don't fuck ourselves because while we're, you have to understand, you don't have to, you, you may want to <laughs> consider, as I'm sure everyone in this room has, one has to consider what it would have been like sitting on your farm in the Midwest of America, watching the blue states focus on whether a person who was biologically born a male can go into a woman's toilet, which if you've read a lot about trans politics is very important and interesting and, and it's the cutting edge of, of, you know, having made such incredible progress in the last 10 years with LGBT, uh, LGBT rights and stuff that you know with the trans part of that collection of letters is this sort of cutting edge of that and we're trying to move it forward and stuff but you if you haven't read all that literature it you you just look fucking mad to them we look fucking mad and we just have to take care of our discourse to make sure we don't our ethical position 
and I'm, I'm, I, I have been accused of this, when I did my Steel Claw Australia homophobic, I, I upset people who just haven't had the same lived experience as I have, and that's fine, I was happy to upset them, but, but they're right to be upset, to be called a homophobic cunt when, when you haven't had loads of gay friends. Like it's, they have a different lived experience, and I think it's important progressives extend their empathy, not just to kids on Nauru, not just to, to trans people, not just to our queer friends or people of colour, but to... The hardest thing is to extend our empathy to people who... Just to fucking... People who haven't read the books we've read. Mm. You know? And that's hard, because you're angry at them. Uh, without driving off a cliff, that's a nice segue to... <laughs> sort of the state of politics at the moment. Oh, look at the hair. He's taken off his beanie and now his fantastic mop of I'm hair. I'm hot and uh, my shirt's coming off next. <laughs> it's going to be that kind of night. Yeah. Um, that, that, that brings us sort of to, like, there seems to be a... Mo- uh, we seem to be at a moment in the world where things are a little bit wobbly and awry. So, I mean, it's a little bit what, like what you were saying about the empathy thing, which I think is really important because... Uh, there's a, you know, if you attribute any level of the rise of the right in Europe to concerns about immigration, uh, for example, and about the integration of Muslim communities in poor working class suburbs of Paris and Brussels and London, if that has anything to do with the rise of the right, then you also have to lay some blame at, the, at our feet as progressives, well, or our colleagues over there, for never having been able to articulate or accept any articulation of concern about immigration or about terrorism without immediately branding people as being uh, xenophobes, Islamophobes, um, fascists and and racists. So I wonder what you think is actually happening. I don't know. I really don't... haven't read enough. I mean, do you think something's changing or do you think this is just... Well, there's, there's a couple of things. What's the fallacy where we always think we're at the end times? I mean, you, there's a fallacy fallacy about that, though. Everyone's like, oh, everyone always thinks the world's coming to an end. And I'm like, yeah, but when it does, <laughs> when it is coming to an end, you don't want to be like the one who went, oh, it's probably just another one of those. It's like, no, there will come a time when it is all going to shit and we don't want to miss it just because bad mm. shit's happened before. And by the way, the, the world has gone to shit a couple of times in the last century, you know, so um, you shouldn't let your guard down. Um, I think the internet places all global politics in a very unusual... I don't think the presumption that what is happening in the world post-digital technology, I don't think history can act as a good metaphor. I I think the minute we had all the knowledge in the world at our fingertips that you could hack, well to talk like um, Johan Harari, you know, that you can be hacked. You can now be hacked, right? The the idea that we should use the past as an analogue for now is very, very worrying to me because of climate change, AI and, you know, nuclear proliferation. this is the other thing I'm worried about with progressivism, even though I personally attach to identity politics and the fight for, you know, people who have been disadvantaged. 
none of it matters as much as climate change or AI because we won't be allowed to fight for our trans friends if the world breaks. And I, I think I have pretty serious digital phobia. I think, I think I, it's not that I think, I think it might be the emancipation of all people. It might be the beginning of the fixing of humanity, mm. but it might not be. And I don't think we can just assume it'll all work itself out. Digital technology has thrown the rule book out, I think. Let's and I could talk a lot about that, but I probably wouldn't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll guide you into safer ground where you will know what you're talking about on the same subject, because um, let's pull back from apocalyptic visions of artificial intelligence. I don't think I've it's about the singularity and about. robots taking over. Our, I, yeah. I think it's actually AI, as in a Russian computer, knows how to make you vote a certain way. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the hacking I'm talking about, not yeah. someone pinning a computer into the back of your skull while you're asleep, uh, what? which has also happened, but only to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about the real, uh, the reality that we all live with every single day, which is that we have supercomputers in our pockets, that the apps that we use on those supercomputers are designed by whiz-bang 22-year-olds on skateboards in, in corporate parks in, uh, in Palo Alto, California, whose sole mission in life is to maximise the time that we spend on those apps. Time on site is the main yardstick of measurement. And that what encourages you to spend a lot of time on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter uh, or Snapchat is something that is going to stir your emotions. And things that stir your emotions tend to be negative or they tend to be outrageous or they tend to pander to you. They tend to bring out all of the kind of worst things in you. And you know, the, other, the other day I was meeting a friend to go and see a movie and I, my phone was out of battery, it was dead. And he was late. And I'm standing there outside the cinema on the footpath and I was like, what the fuck do I do now? Like, what did we do before we had... I just stand here like an idiot, looking at passers-by, gazing at the fucking clouds? Where's my Instagram? And what's amazing is that that's amazing, that you have to spend seven minutes without being able to contact somebody seven and without minutes. being able to do it. Oh, it was fucking you hard, okay? Tim. You don't understand, okay? It's difficult out here. You and your ivory tower. Here I am on the street. With your batteries. For seven... Yeah, you and your fancy batteries. Yeah, I, I mean... Everyone's having these conversations and there seems to be no functional way to change. Well, how do you manage it as a human being, as a creative ba person? Badly. Right. I seem to have come peaked. I've sort of stopped. I've taken Facebook off my phone, so I don't look at that anymore. I've started looking at Instagram to kind of replace it, but Instagram bores me because there's pictures of shit. Um, <laughs> what I want is the is the discourse, is the argument. That's why Twitter's my my baby. But it's it is exactly what you say. It's a hell pit of anxiety mm. because we're not we haven't really evolved to take on the problems of the planet. It's really bad for our mental health, and I I think it's really bad for us. I really really do. I think it's really really bad for humans to. This comes back to empathy again. We, we, this idea that we should extend our empathy infinitely, I think is lovely, but it might not be pragmatically very good for us. Um, I think we need to manage our empathy. I don't really have any solution, but it does, 
It distresses me a lot. Yes. On the one hand, it, it creates toxic conversations. On the other hand, just the fact of not getting bored, I'm starting to feel like there's a virtue in boredom and that actually creativity gets fostered in those moments where you are just looking at the clouds and not yeah. looking at what other people are arguing about. Yeah, the only way I can be creative is to give myself a deadline that will be impossible if I don't fucking do it. You know? <laughs> but I've always been like that. I've, I, if it wasn't this, I would, if it wasn't Twitter, I'd be procrastinating some other way. But um, I used to procrastinate by playing the piano, which worked out fine. <laughs> um, Turned the, out to be quite lucrative, in fact. Yeah, that's exactly why I can play piano is because I didn't like doing other stuff. But, um, I, yeah, look... Uh, I don't know, we just have to wait and see how it all turns out in 10 years because the progress we've made because of our ability to communicate and because otherwise repressed voices have been able to rise up without having to get permission from multinationals or leadership, th this is all good stuff. Hmm. Um, I, 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 just, I just think we have to be aware that it's uncharted. And, you know, having kids, oh man... It's too, it just makes my brain explode. I, I don't really have a clear set of ideas about it, except that I think it's very easy as progressives to, you end up with a, a curated feed of people talking about the ideas that make you feel most passionate, as you mentioned, and you can, you can forget that there's a big world out there with a lot of stuff going on and that your particular brand of identity politics is not necessarily the only thing that matters. But maybe it's the only thing that matters to you and maybe that's fine. And maybe I just need to stop reading Twitter and getting a distorted view of what progressives are doing. I mean, maybe we are doing pretty well on climate change in the last five years. It has... It does feel like we're winning for the first time. In really? Yeah, I think so. Okay, good. Not, 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 not the battle against climate change, but I think, more, I think more people believe the fucking science than don't. Now. I mean, you would hope that 100% of people would believe science, because it's science. No, but they don't, because they're people. <laughs> Half of America are conspiracy theorists. Genuine, dyed-in-the-fucking-wool conspiracy theorists. Half of the cunts. Whether it's climate change or, or the Jews or the moon landing or fake news, about half of Don't them... Don't get me started on the Jewish conspiracy to the <laughs> million on the moon. That was bullshit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, why is that? And maybe, maybe we can sort of uh, segue our way towards, towards questions here by, by getting your thought. You I mean, you think a lot about atheism. You think a lot about reason and, and science and religiosity. Um, why is so much of the world still enamoured of fantastical beliefs? I think it's all connected. I think if you look, if you click through, God forbid, on someone who's a Trump, a flag-waving Trump supporter, there's two things that's always in their Twitter bio. One's a fucking American football or baseball team, and the other is Jesus. Um, so this is a little thought I have. I, you know, I, I don't spend all my life thinking about religion I, that, that's kind of my, my interest in that intersected with my comedy career and that's what I got known for and that's fine. I mean, mostly the last 10 years have spent writing children's musicals. But, um, but I'm very, very interested in uh, why we believe crazy stuff or why we believe anything. And, it, and it's a bottomless and very interesting rabbit hole. But I do think that people... That America being a um, very... Uh, country full of Christians, I think it's a country primed 
So when you're a very religious person, you are, you are a master at ironing out your cognitive dissonance, right? So, so when, when you live in a world where stuff drops and people don't do magic, but you need to believe that 2,000 years ago there was a person that did do magic and that they, they are love, um, what you're doing is every day you're just, you're just managing your cognitive dissonance because your brain's going, there's no magic, but there is. With Jesus, he's in my heart. And you're doing it all day, every day from childhood. And you get very good at believing what is clearly not so. So when Trump comes into office and he's clearly a buffoon, you are fucking all over that shit because he's a Republican president who says you're going to keep your guns. And you're like, believing that that fucking bumbling asshole is a genius? I can do that. I believe Jesus is in my heart. You know, so I do think there's a connection. I, I think they are masters at, at, at being able to look at a thing and believing the opposite. And they might be fucking brilliant, lovely, intelligent people in all other ways, but they've been primed to manage their cognitive dissonance. What, 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 what were you saying earlier about extending our empathy towards people who we disagree <laughs> with politically? I feel sorry for the fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> I want to send them books and stuff. Mm. <laughs> Just a... Uh, a book airlift, just drop them from planes Leaflets. with little wee umbrellas. Yeah. Have them falling, raining down on Texas. I would like to know if anyone's actually studying this thing, this idea that religiosity primes you to be good at managing your cognitive dissonance and has outcomes beyond religiosity in the rest of your life. I, yeah, I, I yeah, know. No, I think, they, I think they are. But I think there's also another component, just to get, to get wonky here, which is that uh, religiosity also trains you to think in terms of uh, paternalistic uh, kind yeah. of God figures. And so it, it, it encourages a it sort of... It'll, it enables you to not flex the muscle of total self-reliance and independence. Yeah. And so then when a godlike figure comes along and says that they're going to fix everything, yeah. uh, I mean, he literally, you know, Trump literally during the, ca the campaign said, I alone can fix it. Yeah. Uh, then you're more susceptible to believing that that's possible. And he does look like a god. He does. Oh, he's I mean, beautiful. Physically, his Adonis. glorious pectoral <laughs> glorious. muscles. Yeah. Have you his ever little, seen him riding a horse like Putin? Yeah. <laughs> His little penis chipped off like a marble. <laughs> a marble Tiny statue. little mushroom-headed cock. Mushroom. Poor little man. Uh, let's... Uh... Such a horror show. <laughs> that concludes your initial instalment of my live show with Tim Minchin. Next week, the second half of our conversation, live just before Christmas 2018 at Giant Dwarf. See you then.